Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. Glad to have you. Glad you would join us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me or somebody else that looks like they're confident around here. They looks like they know what's, what's happening. We'd love to. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. So. Uh, this morning, we're actually uh, wrapping up a short series that we've been in called The Way of the Exile. And uh, normally here at River City, we kind of just pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. But sometimes what we try to do is uh, take, study various themes that, that weave their way throughout the story of Scripture. And, and so that's what we've been doing over the course of this short series. And, and the theme that we have been focusing in on is the, uh, the identity of God's people as exiles. And uh, so if you are new or if you've been gone or if you can't remember what you had for breakfast, let alone what I talked about last week, uh, let me give you a brief recap about where we've been because in a lot of ways the series that we're heading to this morning, uh, the, series, the, the sermon that we're going to do this morning is kind of a build up of where we've been the last couple of weeks. So uh, we began our series a few weeks ago taking a look at Jeremiah chapter 29 as well as 1 Peter 1 and 2 and, and we saw how in those passages how the Old Testament not only describes God's people as exiles, but it highlights the reality that seeing ourselves as exiles is actually inextricably linked with understanding our identity and our calling and our purpose as God's people in the world. And the idea here is that we are citizens of God's kingdom sent as his ambassadors to care deeply about the people and the places where we live because the, the perspective of an exile helps us to see that not only is this world not our true home, it's our temporary home, but it's also our urgent mission field. And so we've been sent by the king to live as his exile people, his exile missionary ambassadors in the world. And because God wants the people that he has sent us to, to encounter him through us. And the following week, we studied Daniel chapter 3, and we saw how in Daniel chapter 3, there's the story of these three young exile missionaries, and we, we asked the question, what keeps us from living with the perspective of an exile? What keeps us from living with the attitude that this world is not our true home, and that, but it is our urgent mission field? And we saw in Daniel 3 how the answer to that question has everything to do with worship. He says, whatever we worship is the thing that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in our lives. And so the object of our worship, therefore, will either empower or impede our ability to live as God's missionary people in the world. And so when we worship the idols of power or comfort or control or approval, those, those things, they make it impossible for us to live as God's people in the world because fundamentally something else, those desires are controlling us. But when we worship the one true God, not only are we able to live with boldness and confidence and hope and peace in the midst of exile, we're actually able to point others to the source of that peace, which is our calling in the first place. And so living in exile has a perspective on exile, has to do with worship in exile. We saw two weeks ago then that what it looks like for God's exile people to pursue the kind of change that he wants to bring about in us and that he sent us into the world to bring about. And in studying Jesus' interaction with some religious leaders in Matthew 15, we, we saw how uh, the reality that the real problems in our world are not primarily moral ones, they're not primarily political problems, they, they are not primarily uh, external problems that can be fixed by governments or laws. Instead, the real problems that need fixing in us and in our world have to do with the internal problem of sin. And so what we really need isn't moral reform. What we really need isn't political overhaul. What we really need is, uh, what we need and what our world needs is new hearts. 
new motivations, new desires, and we saw in Scripture that only Jesus can give that to us. And so living in the way of the exile requires that we stop looking, uh, looking to change ourselves or to change the world through external means, whether that's relying on political power or influence or self-effort and determination or whether that's using guilt or shame to bring about change in people. Instead, we look to the transforming power of the gospel and the good news that Jesus is able to completely solve the internal problem of sin and, and that manifests itself in all the, the things that problems that we see in our world. And he does that by giving people new hearts with new desires and new motivations and new passions to, to, that want to follow him and want to obey him and want to be like him. And so we seek to declare and to de- demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel with our words and with our lives. And And finally, last week, we studied passages like Ephesians 4 and John chapter 17, and and which highlighted how the unity of God's people in the midst of exile is a critical component of what it means to live as God's people in the world. And as Christians, we saw how we're not called to uniformity, we're not called to just looking exactly the same and thinking exactly the same and doing exactly the same. Neither are we called towards careless indifference. Rather, we're called to a peace and to a bearing with one another in the midst of our differences in a way we saw that was foreign to the world. saw in Philippians 2, as we studied last week, how, how it's the vertical reconciliation with God, the, the unity that we have with God, that's the thing that enables us to have a unity amongst one another. And so we saw as well that the gospel it calls us and motivates us and empowers us as the church to pursue unity. And, and when the gospel is our greatest joy and our deepest passion, then unity will be a result of that happening. And, and an otherworldly kind of unity, when that characterizes the church, what it does is it glorifies God. It demonstrates his transforming power in a way that few other things can. And so hopefully, as you've seen so far in our short series, is that that seeing ourselves as exiles, living in the way of the exile, living as dual citizens of God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, it transforms how we think about, how we relate, how we engage with the world around us in an all-encompassing kind of way. But there's one big area that we've only touched on briefly until now, and, and I think it's actually a really important area for us to talk about because uh, especially in the midst of us going through another election season in our country right now. And, and that's, that's the question of how our identity as exiles impacts the way that we think about relating to the governmental and political structures in our world. Uh, it's one of the most pressing questions that's faced God's people living in every culture and every age. How, how do we relate to politics and government in our world? How do we relate to the kingdoms of this world as citizens, primarily citizens of another kingdom? Should we endorse any political party or movement? If so, how much? To what degree? What are the dangers of joining our allegiances with God to a loyalty to a nation or to a government or to a political party? What I want to do this morning in our time together is just take a a look at how Jesus answers some of those questions. And and I want to examine what his answers show us about the the kind of relationships that citizens in his kingdom should have with the governments and kingdoms and politics of this world. And and so as we study, what I want to show you in Jesus' answer and his responses to these kinds of things is is that to live first as citizens of his kingdom means that we're going to, in relationship to the kingdoms and governments and politics of this world, that we're going to need to reject or refuse political simplicity, political complacency, and political primacy. And so, with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our study in God's Word this morning. 
Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are thankful that you would give us your word so that we might uh, know you in it and be transformed uh, by it. And, and so we just come humbly this morning and ask, God, that you would be graciously at work in our hearts and in our lives through your word. And, and we as well, we want to say, Jesus, we, we need you to meet us in our need for you. We, uh, God, I don't have the power to teach or preach rightly or with any transforming power without you being the one that does it. And, and as well, we, got, we don't have any ability to respond rightly to you and to your word without you making that happen in our hearts. And so we come humbly asking uh, that you would uh, meet us in our need for you as we study your word. And as well, God, we come expectantly, joyfully looking forward to the ways that you will uh, shape us and change us, the ways that you might correct or change or, or shape our hearts so that we might look more like your son, Jesus. And so, God, for our good, for our joy, for your great glory, we ask all that this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, we're in Mark chapter 12 this morning, and uh, beginning in verse 13. Later, the chief priests, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they, they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, our passage this morning, it begins with uh, two incredibly unlikely groups of people coming together to ask the same question of Jesus. And it's obvious in the passage that their question is meant to trap him. But to understand the, the kind of trap their question is setting, you need to understand a little bit of the context of the situation and the first is that their, their question isn't about taxes in general. Their, their question is about a specific tax. It's, a, it's about the imperial tax. And that wasn't a, a tax on income or on goods or services, anything like that. It was basically what it was is was a head tax. And, and it was basically this small amount, not a big thing, but a small amount that was levied against everyone in the Roman Empire, basically for the privilege of being under Roman rule. When it comes to being under Roman rule, when it comes to government and politics, the Pharisees and the Herodians, these two groups of people that come to Jesus, they are not on the same team, to say the least. In fact, they are from opposite ends of the political spectrum of Jesus' day. You see, the Pharisees, they were incredibly anti-Rome. They did not like the imperial tax because they believed that Roman rule itself was an intrusion on their dominion and their authority and their ability to live as God's people, they thought. And the Herodians, on the other hand, they were very pro-Rome because they were loyal to Herod, who the Roman government had supported and kind of made the, the leader of the area. And the Herodians, they favored taxes to Caesar because they had jobs in Herod's government and they, uh, they, their livelihoods and uh, expanded their dominion when the taxes were paid. And so the Herodian dynasty was dependent on Roman rule. And, and so you have these two sides. You have pro-Rome and anti-Rome that come to Jesus and say, how should we think about it? How should we relate to Rome? And so you see the trap that they're setting by very nature, the very nature of their question is a political one. You see, they want Jesus to announce 
which side he's on. They want him to announce which political party he's voting for. And it's a trap because if he responds that it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians are just going to allege him for uh, just uh, Jesus for for advocating for resistance and for inciting political rebellion. On the other side, if he says that it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees are going to charge Jesus for advocating for compromise with Rome and, and disloyalty to God. And so it's quite this trap that's going on here. And yet Jesus' response we see this morning, it not only uh, escapes their trap, it confronts the very nature of their question in the first place. And in responding to their politically motivated question, the, the first thing that we see Jesus doing is rejecting political simplicity. You see, they want Jesus to announce which side he's on. They want him to announce which political party he's voting for. They they want him to give them a yes or no answer. Which team are you on? Emphatically. Verse 14, they say, is it right for us to pay the imperial tax of Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? See, but what we see Jesus doing is that he refuses to give them a simple answer. He refuses to align his kingdom and his priorities with either of their political agendas. He refuses to say, this is God's party, and this is God's team, and this is God's platform. And the reality, I think, is that for followers of Jesus, that we must do the same. You see, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, and they, they present this question as if there's, it's one way or the other. There's, you have to be on this team, you have to, you're either with us or you're against us. You're on team A or team B. And there's no other options, especially in the eyes of the Pharisees, the question about being with Rome or being against Rome, it was essentially the same as saying, are you on God's side or are you not on God's side? Are you pro-God or are you anti-God? We see the same thing happening all the time as we think about our political spectrums, right? You see people post or say things like, you know, you can't be a real Christian if you voted for this party or this candidate. You, if you really believe the Bible, if you, if you really loved God, then you'd vote for this politician or this policy if you how could anyone who calls themselves a christian vote for whoever x y or z party you see but that's not how jesus responds in fact he is unwilling to align his priority and his kingdom with a specific uh, political agenda because here's the deal see there is no political party there is no political agenda that perfectly aligns with him See, there's no political party, there's no agenda that perfectly encapsulates his kingdom and its values. And to say that one does and one does not is to confuse God with Caesar in the first place. You see, and when we do that as Christians, what we do is we set up these unnecessary roadblocks for people who are figuring out what it means to follow Jesus because people think, ah, if I, if, I need, if I become a Christian, that also means I've got to convert to this political party or this political opinion or this political spectrum. And the reality is that Jesus says nothing about those things. We put up these roadblocks oftentimes for people that, that, that confuse God with Caesar, I think. What I'm not saying is that you can't believe that one party or another is more closely aligned with Jesus' kingdom values. But to say that one party is on God's side and the other is not, not only is that untrue, Jesus himself refuses to do it. There were aspects of either of their political agendas that were at odds, that stood in contrast to Jesus' kingdom and his, and his values. And there are aspects of both of the political parties in our, in our government today that fundamentally stand at odds in stark contrast with Jesus' kingdom and its values. 
And so as his people, we must refuse to align his kingdom with some specific political party because Jesus himself refused to do it. But I need you to see as well, Jesus, in refusing to align himself with a specific political party or agenda, he isn't calling his followers merely to be apathetic, neither is he calling them to be disengaged from the political spectrum or the political sphere. In fact, when he says, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's, Jesus is, is doing the opposite. He's, he's rejecting political complacency and political disengagement. You see, Jesus does not allow his followers to just opt out of the system, to, to just become unpolitical and to have absolutely nothing to do with the government and nothing to do with that. See, he won't allow it. You see, because the reality is that Jesus cares about people and the governments and the policies and the politics of our world. They actually, they really impact people and lives, and Jesus cares about that. And the Essenes were a, were a group of religious people in Jesus' day, a group of, of Jews that in response to the social and political problems they saw in their own, uh, in their own world, in their own government, th- th- their response was simply to disengage. They literally walked out into the desert, made a new community for themselves. And I hope that after a month of studying what God's word has to say about the identity of God's people as exile missionaries, you know, that that's not a viable option for anyone who wants to follow Jesus and be on mission with him. It's a really helpful New York Times article where Tim Keller, he sums it up this way. He says, Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. For those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. He says, American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. Christians should be involved politically as a way of loving our neighbors, whether they believe as we do or not, to work for better public schools or for justice system that is not weighted against the poor or to end racial inequality requires political engagement. Christians have done these things in the past and should continue to do so. See, for God's people living on as his ambassadors, caring about the people that God has sent us to and the people in our cities and in our world, that means that we're going to have to care about politics in some way, shape, or form. And so Jesus, he rejects political simplicity. He rejects political complacency. But lastly, and I think most importantly in our world today and in our spheres, is that Jesus rejects political primacy. See, it's important that we pay close attention to Jesus' words here. He, he asked them to bring him a coin, a denarius. Uh, and he says, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription is here on this coin? And we see in the passage, it was Caesar's image. Literally, it was Tiberius Caesar. It was his image that was on the coin. And, and we don't see this in the passage, but from history, we know that the inscription on the coin read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, high priest. And so Jesus is literally holding a coin with the image of a political leader who is not just claiming to be a king, but claiming to be God himself, claiming to as well be the mediator between God and people, the high priest. You see, and the reality in Jesus' responses we see is that only one of these kings is truly divine. Only one of these kings can really mediate between God and man. And while Caesar may have been worthy of uh, the coins that he asked for back, 
he was certainly not worthy of their all. He was certainly not worthy of their allegiance. You see, Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is his, but only what is his. It's his money. It bears his image. So fine, give it back to him, but do not give him what is God's. Don't give him what bears God's image. In Genesis 1, we see that humanity itself is made in God's image. And so in other words, what Jesus is saying is, give Caesar the, tax he, the, the taxes he asks for, but do not give him your allegiance. Do not give him your devotion. He might be worthy of your coins, but he is not worthy of your heart. He's not worthy of your highest allegiance. He is not worthy of that. That belongs to God alone. No government, no politician, no political party is worthy of that kind of allegiance. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar the money he asked for, but give back to thing, God the thing that is his, your very self. See, what Jesus is doing here is incredibly profound because he is shifting the discussion altogether from politics to the real issue of allegiance, the real issue of devotion. You see, the Pharisees, as well as the Herodians, they had both wholeheartedly devoted themselves to their political ideology as the, the one way forward for them and for their society. They believed that their political ideology was the key to an abundant life and to a fruitful society. And tragically, what we see happening is all too often is we see Christians aligning themselves with a political party or, or pundit to say, this, this political party, this political leader, they're the way forward for us. And if they get elected, then we'll A, be able to have an abundant life. And if they don't, then everything will be ruined. We see people saying things or posting things like, this is the election of our lives. If X candidate, they're our only hope for a way forward. If, if this party or if this person doesn't get elected, we'll lose all our rights or we'll lose all our freedoms. The only way that change can happen in our world is if this political party, this pundit, this, this thing happens. The only way our country will become more godly is if this person gets elected. In the midst of all of that, I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 2. It reads this way, Why do the nations conspire, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, but the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in wrath. He says, I have installed my own king on Zion, my own holy mountain. You see, the God that we worship is not beholden to any political party or government or system. He's the sovereign king of the universe. And there is nothing that is outside of his authority. There is nothing outside of his plans. There is no system, no politician, no government, no structure that can, that can thwart his efforts and his plans for his people and for, and for the world and so Jesus, he rejects political primacy. He rejects the belief that politics and government are the primary means by which his kingdom is brought about into this world, and so should his citizens of his kingdom. Again, it's not, it's not wrong for God's people that we should care about politics at all, but our hope should never be in any political party or system. They will always fail us. There is only one king and one kingdom that actually brings life. There is only one king and one kingdom that can bring true peace. And it's Jesus and his kingdom. And when you know in the end that he wins, that his way rules, when you know that in the end he comes to set all things right and to rule and to reign forever in the end, then you can trust him in the middle. And you can reject political simplicity and complacency and primacy. 
And you get to hope in Jesus as the one king that rules and reigns. So I want to encourage you this week. How might Jesus be calling you to refuse to look at and relate to the political systems and governments in our world in the way the world wants you to? How might he be calling you to think critically about rejecting, as he does, political simplicity and primacy and complacency? See, maybe you find yourself thinking that there's just one party that Jesus would align himself with and, and, that, and that if anyone thinks otherwise or if they vote otherwise, then they're, then they're really the problem. And maybe like Jesus... You need this morning to realize that there isn't one system, there isn't one party, there isn't one politics that encapsulates his kingdom and its values. Or maybe like Jesus, you need to reject political complacency because Jesus does not call us as his people to be uninvolved and uninterested in this world and its people and their problems. Instead, he calls us to care deeply about it, which means that we'll need to care deeply about what happens in our world and the leaders of it. I might encourage you to ask God how he might be encouraging or challenging you to, to be thoughtful and critical about how you engage with the government and politics in our world so that you might be able to be a light for him. But lastly, I think there's some of us here that we need to reject political primacy. We need to reject the belief that the way that God's kingdom is brought into this world, the way our country becomes more like God's, is that, is that politics or politicians bring that about. You see, there is no government or no law that can change people's hearts. Maybe you find yourself always defending and never critiquing your certain political pundit or party. Maybe you tend to think about people with opposing political views as the enemy. Or maybe you view progress and setbacks as inextricably linked with your party's success and opposition. I just need you to hear this morning, that's idolatry. Jesus calls us to worship him, to have our hope in him, to be set on him, rather than to have our hope in, our, in some political party or some, some political agenda. You see, he is the way to abundant life in the midst of anything. It's him. I was struck this week by a quote I read from David Platt. He said, even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, and even if our government were to become completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders and platforms or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. We can still have hope and peace and joy and confidence regardless of what happens in our government as long as we look to Jesus alone for these things and all of our hope hinges on him. You see, a big part of what we're doing every week when we take communion is reminding ourselves of the source of the peace and the hope and the joy and the confidence that Jesus himself secures for us on the cross. It's a kind of hope and peace and security that no politician can give, that no government can give, that, that no political strategy or agenda could ever offer Jesus died so that you and I might be free from looking to anyone or anything other than him for security and hope and life and joy and confidence. You see, in communion, we take it, it's, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember to remember the gospel, to remember who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, to remember the hope and the life and the security and the joy that his death on our behalf on the cross secures for us. And so this morning as we sing, as we worship, and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you put your trust in Jesus, if your hope is found in him, 
then whenever you're ready, enjoy in thankfulness. Take communion. Hopefully you grabbed one of the communion snack packs on your way in at the table up front. But if you didn't, feel free to grab one of those on your way out. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to have hoped and put your trust in Jesus alone. But if not, I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Maybe you're here this morning and you're figuring out who Jesus is and what you think it means to follow him. And I just need you to hear this. You're welcome here. I'm so glad that you would be here, that you would join us this morning. But I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion because communion is about remembering the confidence that we have through faith in Jesus. And Jesus wants to offer that to you, but he wants you to have faith in him first. And so as we take communion, as we sing, I'd encourage all of you, no matter where you are, talk with God. Be honest with him about what's going on in your own heart. Ask him to show you how he might be calling you to reject political simplicity or complacency or primacy so that you might be able to live first as a citizen of his kingdom, pointing others to the only real, lasting source of hope and life and truth and joy. I pray that we would do that as a church for for our good, for the joy and life of the people that God has sent us into and for his, God's great glory in all the world as a people live with an otherworldly kind of hope in the midst of chaotic situations, but have peace and joy no matter what. And so to that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we, we come before you this morning. We're grateful that we would get to gather as your people and that we would get to gather and uh, study your word. And God, we just want to come humbly and just say we are, we are often tempted God, towards political simplicity and complacency and primacy. We're tempted to put our hope in something other than you to bring about the abundant life that we think that we need in this world. But Jesus, help us. Help us as your kingdom people to set our hope on our eternal home with you. God, which enables us to see this world as our temporary home and therefore as our urgent mission field so that we might reject political primacy and complacency and simplicity and instead live lives full of hope in you no matter what. Be as a people who waves your flag instead of the flag of some political party or pundit. God, who puts you as the king that is worthy of following and who trusts you with our lives and with our emotions and who lives in such a way that our hope is so clearly found in you. Help us to do that, Jesus, so that our world might see the hope and life and confidence and security that you offer, that no kingdom, no government, no politician can give. Help us to be an exile people who points people to you. Thanks that you became an exile for us to love us and serve us and save us so that our hope might be in you. Amen.